Welcome back to the Yellow Box Podcast. This week, we are joined by our teaching pastor, Ian Simpkins, as we begin a brand new series, In God We Trust. For more information, please visit us at www.communitychristian.org. And remember, you can always find us on Sundays at the Yellow Box at 9.30 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 5 p.m. And also on Monday nights at 6.30 p.m. We hope to see you there. Well, good morning, community. How are you feeling this morning? Man, it is good to be with you. A special welcome if you're joining us digitally. Uh, Hi, Mom. Anyway, um, as John mentioned, we're starting a new series today called In God We Trust. And uh, it made me think of a story that I heard years and years and years ago. It's about uh, Morris and Esther. Morris and Esther, every single year without fail, would go to the state fair. And at the state fair, there was all sorts of options of things to do. And one of them was to take a plane ride up with a, uh, a trained pilot. And every year, Morris would say to Esther, oh man, I want to fly that plane. I want to fly in that plane so bad. And Esther would respond the same way every year. I know, honey, but it's $50. And $50 is $50. Year after year, Morris would say, I want to fly in that that plane. And Esther would say, I know, dear, but it's $50. And $50 is $50. Well, one year, they're at the fair. Esther said what she always said. And Morris said, I don't care anymore. I'm 85 years old. (laughs) I may not get another chance to do this. I'm flying in that there plane. And Esther responded, I know, dear, but it's $50 and $50. It's $50. Well, one of the pilots overheard this argument. And he said, tell you what. I'll take you both up absolutely for free if you can promise not to say a word. If I take you for this entire ride and you don't say a word, I'll give you the whole flight for free. But if I hear you say one word, it's $50. And they said, you got yourself a deal. So they hop into this plane and this pilot, he had a plan in place. He's doing barrel rolls and dips and dives all over the place. He's, I mean, it's all sorts of other aviation terms I don't know. He's all over the place. And so he lands the plane though. And he turns to congratulate the couple for not saying a word amidst all of that chaos. But to his surprise, he looks back and only Morris is sitting there. (laughs) Stunned, the pilot says to Morris, where is your wife? What happened to your wife? And Morris said, well, I thought about saying something back there when she came loose, but, um, (laughs) well, you know, $50 is $50. (laughs) Okay, so some of you loved that joke. (laughs) Most of you hated it. I can feel it in the room right now. (laughs) But when it comes to conversations about money, though, I feel like a lot of us kind of tense up a little bit, right? Especially when we have conversations in church. There's something about talking about money, talking about our finances, that just sort of like makes us tense up a little bit. And so I want to I want to start this way. Does anyone have like a, like a paper dollar I could borrow? Like actual paper money. Anyone here? Not Venmo or Apple Pay or... I need like an actual, yeah, like an actual paper dollar. Thank you so much. Um, do, do you have anything bigger by chance? Do you have any? <laughs> I guess I can use this. Yeah, this will work. This is fine. Okay, so um, I don't actually need to use this. Thanks for the uh, money though. I appreciate that. <laughs> Today's sermon is on trust, and you failed. I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> okay, so, so for you millennials in the room, this is called a dollar. And, um, 
it's easy to miss, right? Because there's, there's all sorts of stuff printed on the dollar. But one of the things that I find fascinating is that printed in plain sight on the dollar is the phrase, in God we trust. And the irony for me is that we print in God we trust on the very thing we often trust instead of God. Isn't that ironic? It's printed on our dollar, on the mighty dollar, in God we trust. It's often the thing that we trust instead of God. This, this is our national motto, but do you know that it wasn't always that way? In fact, when our country was founded, the motto is e pluribus unum, which means from many, one. From many, one. In fact, this wasn't printed on our currency until 1956. And the reason is pretty fascinating, pretty multi-layer, but one of the reasons that we started printing it on our currency was because of the rise of secularized communism. And so our response then was to print God on our money. Our response to this secularized communism was to print God on our money as if that would solve it. And here's the thing about this almighty dollar. It may say, in God we trust. But if we're really honest, a lot of us obsess over getting more of it, keeping what we already have, or obsessing about plans of what to do with it in the future. Is it truly God we trust or the dollar it's printed on. Would you give it up for our very trusting uh, volunteer here? <laughs> Thanks so much. I was doing a little bit of research in preparation for this particular topic, and um, I found some fascinating stats when it, when it pertains to uh, finances in the United States. There's a, a number of different companies that did some studies like uh, LendEDU and the Simple Dollar, and here are a few that kind of stood out to me. The first is this. Um, the average credit card debt for the American household is 5247 that's the average. Now, some of you are like, that seems low, right? That's, that's the average in the United States. How about, how about this next stat here, though? The amount of interest an average American pays each year is more than 14% of their income. The average interest per year is more than 14% of their income. But it's, it's this last one that really kind of rattles me a little bit. It says the average American Christian gives about 1.4% of their income to the church. So just move that decimal on over. The average Christian gives 1.4% to the local church. In fact, in 2018, Northwestern Mutual did a study that found that issues concerning finances were the number one stressors for Americans. Number one. And some of you, I can see in your faces, you're like, I'm not surprised. I'm not shocked. In fact, um, I'll be honest, I put myself in that category a lot. There, there, is, there is something in me that just stresses about money that sometimes I just, I just cannot explain. I'm, I'm not by any means standing on this stage as someone who's like arrived and figured it out. I'm gonna share this information with you. This is very real for me and my household. I, I go to Goodwill every day during my birth month because stuff at Goodwill is half off during your birth month. Did you know that? Like that's the kind of tightwad that I am. And yet, regardless of your context or your background, this likely affects you in some way, shape, or form. But here's the good news. We don't have to live like that. Number one stressor for Americans, it does not have to be our story. It does not have to be our reality. And right at the onset, let me just say this. Um, there's no commitment card coming later in the service, okay? Like, relax. Everyone lower your shoulders. <laughs> set your resting heart rate back to its original rate. That's, there's, no, there's no card coming at the end of the service, Okay? But, but I believe that trusting God 
begins with our attitude. To trust God often can feel very nebulous, very ethereal. And I believe it begins first with an attitude about what we believe to be truly true about God. In fact, philosopher William James put it this way. He says, the greatest discovery of my generation is that a human being can alter his life by altering his attitudes. I think that's absolutely true. Think about even back to the garden, right? The first sin didn't begin with eating fruit. It began with a migration of trust. It began with a, a shifting of attitude. Did God really say that? Is God really true? Oh, you make a good, solid point, talking serpent. I think I will eat. I think I will choose my own way. Our attitude toward God will affect our behavior. That's true just in life, even if you're not a Jesus person. Your attitude about something affects and often drives your behavior. So what is it about our money then, our finances? What, what, what is it about money that often makes us so tense, so on edge? I think the, the writer of Proverbs put it well. It says, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. There is a way that seems right, that, that if I accumulate more, if I make more, if I have more, that will give me peace, that will give me satisfaction. So often this feels right, this script, this narrative makes sense, and the writer of Proverbs was saying, sometimes, sometimes the thing that seems right is actually the path to destruction. It won't ultimately satisfy so my guess is that in a room like this, we probably have a number of different attitudes and postures when it, when it comes to our money. Maybe, maybe this is you here this morning. Maybe you're thinking, man, as long as I'm making monthly payments, I don't have a problem with finances. Right? I'm making the payments. I'm fine. This talk isn't for me. Maybe this next one is you. So as long as I have money to go out to eat, everything is fine. <laughs> right? It's not Hugo's, but it's Chili's, right? I can do a sizzling fajita every once in a while. Things are fine. Maybe this one is you here. As long as I can take care of my family and have a little to put away for the future, I'm good. I'm fine, preacher boy. I don't need this sermon. I don't need this talk. Some of you said yes to one of those. Maybe you said yes to all of them and you're thinking, yeah, so what? Right? So what? And that's kind of my point. That's kind of the issue. Because blindness to our own blindness, I think, is the most dangerous kind of blindness. How do we fix something that we don't even know is a problem? We can't. We can't go after stuff if we don't even know it's an issue. And the reality is, sometimes we believe lies that on the surface actually sound like truths. Here are a couple that come to mind for me. Line number one, money will satisfy me. Now, most of us know not to say it that bluntly, but don't we often live that way? We live with sort of this insatiable, man, once, once I make this much, or once I've climbed this ladder high enough, or once I've accomplished, once my house is X amount of square, we, we assume that will satisfy me, but has anyone ever reached that mile marker only to find a day, a week, a month later that it didn't actually satisfy? When, when we put the weight and expectation of God on anything other than God, it may take a while, it will eventually crumble beneath the weight. It won't satisfy. Now, I'm, I'm not naive I know that we need money. I know that that's a normal part of functioning, to pay our mortgage, to put our kids through school, to eat, to survive. I, I understand that. My issue is that so often we think that money will be the thing that leads to my contentment, and I've bought into that lie myself. And it's exactly that. It's a lie. Maybe, maybe we think this. 
If I could just get rid of this car for a newer one, maybe one with Bluetooth, I'd be satisfied, right? Maybe this next one's a little true for you. I really need to update my wardrobe like my friend has, plus I deserve it. Maybe followed by a Z-snap or something. I'm not, I don't know your life. Um, maybe this third one. If I could just build that outdoor patio like my neighbor has, then I'll be satisfied. Patio, by definition, is outdoors, but we won't go there right now. Um, my point is we've all probably felt at some level that keeping up with the Joneses mentality, right? If I could just have this, then I could breathe easy. Then I'll be content. Then I'll be at peace. Then that will satisfy. Now Solomon, who we talked about a few weeks ago, of anyone at the time that he was alive who should have been satisfied by his wealth, by his possessions, by his money, the wealthiest man on planet Earth at the time, it should have been him. And yet he writes this pretty hauntingly. He says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. It makes me think of a really telling interview with John D. Rockefeller years ago, wealthiest man at the time in America, and he was asked by a reporter, John, how much is enough? How much is enough? And his response was, just a little more. A lot of us are living on that treadmill right now. Just a little more. Once I get this, once I've achieved that, once I have blank, then I'll be satisfied. If anyone should have been satisfied with their wealth and possessions, it was Solomon. And ultimately he said, it's a vapor, it's a mist. Line number two that I think we often believe It's my money. I can do whatever I want with it, right? Now, if we're honest, we often say that when we're justifying buying something at the expense of being generous towards somebody else, aren't we? Like, I deserve deserve whatever I'm buying. And here's the thing. Like, I've said this myself. It's it's technically true. In fact, can I just be vulnerable? Like, I really struggle with this one. Because if I was sitting where you're sitting, I hear that and I think, no, no, no. I'm the one that set the alarm at 6 a.m., I'm the one that puts on the clothes that I earned, that I bought. I'm the one that hops in my car. Sure, it's a purple Kia Rio. Don't judge me, but it's still my car, and I bought it. I'm the one that made that happen, and technically, that's true. Technically, there's a lot of truth to that, but let's think broader. Let's think bigger. Let's think deeper. When you were born, who in this room delivered themselves? Anybody? If you did, we should talk afterwards. That's incredible. (laughs) When we were born, somebody delivered us. Someone brought us into this world. Somebody taught us to read and to write. Someone sheltered us. Someone fed us. Some skilled engineer designed and built the car that you drive. Yeah, yeah, we, we may be the ones that set the alarm and go to the job, but it's way more profound than that. We are not solely responsible for the things in our life. To recognize that, I think, is a really, really important thing for us to wrestle with. Listen to what the, the psalmist says in Psalm 24. It says, the earth is the, who's? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, all who live in it. This is a posture of stewardship. It's saying everything that I have, even breath in my lungs is a gift. Every dollar, every brick, every vehicle, everything that you have is a gift that we are to steward well in the world. We are not the owners of it. God is. And that's a shift in what? In attitude. 
It becomes less than, God, how much of my money do I have to give? And it becomes more, God, how much of your money do I get to keep? If everything in the world is yours, God, help me to see with new eyes that everything I have, even that car that only starts every third time, even that house with the water heater that doesn't crank out the way that I want it to, even the stuff that we look at and see as deficient is a gift. Breath in our lungs right now is a gift. So the question that we maybe ask is, how can I honor God with whatever it is he's given me? However you answer that question, how can I honor God with the resources, the finances, the stuff that he's given me? Now, the third lie is one that maybe you're thinking this morning, and it's this. All the church talks about is money. Please hold the applause. Um, <laughs> I get it. And maybe, maybe somebody this morning was like, of all the days to bring a friend today, we're talking about money. <laughs> We've already locked the doors. You can't go anywhere. Um, you're in it for the long haul. I, I totally get it. Maybe you feel that way this morning. But, but at least understand this. The Bible talks a lot about money. A lot. Here are just a couple of examples. Uh, 16 of Jesus' 38 parables deal with money. 16 of 38 deal with money, wealth, or possessions. How about this next one? There's more in the New Testament about money than heaven and hell combined. This last one, this last one really kind of rattled me. There are five times more verses deal with money and possessions than prayer. Throughout scripture, five times as many passages about money and possessions than prayer. I remember years ago giving a talk about money and a guy came up to me afterwards and he said, I get that we need to talk about money every once in a while, but shouldn't we be talking about spiritual things? And I said, sir, if you're at a point in your life where you think you're more spiritual than the Bible, you may need to reevaluate some things. My point is this, scripture speaks about what we do with our stuff. Jesus spends a quarter of his earthly ministry talking about our money, our wealth, our possessions. In fact, he says pretty famously, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's kind of showing his cards a little bit. He's saying he's ultimately going after our heart. Jesus is always going after our heart. And he says, do you want to know where your heart is? Follow the money. It's kind of like, you know, when the light on your dashboard goes off and says you have low oil, when that light goes off, it's not letting you know that you have a light problem. It's letting you know that you have a deeper problem, an oil problem. She's just saying, man, money will show you where your heart really is. That's why it comes up over and over and over again, because the writers of scripture understand where your treasure is, where you spend, where you save, that, that's what you really care about. In fact, the early church was marked by radical generosity, by radical, unprecedented, no-strings-attached generosity. In fact, 25 years after Constantine died, um, there's an emperor named Julian that rose to power, and he brought Rome back to pagan practices, and it, it didn't go well for him, and he was not a fan of Christianity, but a bunch of his letters survived, and in one of those letters, he's complaining to some of his priests about these Christians, these Galileans, and here, here's part of what he wrote to them. He said, their success lies in their charity to strangers. These impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. Not a fan of Jesus and these Christ followers. But he watched the way they lived and said, man, they're not even just loving their own people. They're loving everybody they come in contact with. They don't see anything that they have as their own. In fact, they steward it well in a way that even the people that hated them were drawn to them. 
Think about it. I would argue that the greatest leverage the early church had, it wasn't stages. It wasn't websites. It wasn't conferences and books. It was their radical generosity and compassion. These Christ followers were being executed. They were being fed to the lions. And over and over and over again, they were marked by the way they saw their stuff as on loan to them from the God who gives good things. So instead of believing the lies, I want to challenge us to believe some truths. Here's the first truth I want us to wrestle with. Everything good comes from God. Everything good comes from God. James, the half-brother of Jesus, I think puts it brilliantly. He said this, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Does not change like shifting shadows. Again, I struggle with this. This one's tough to wrap my brain around because so often we feel like the masters of our own destiny, right? But there's not a single person in this room who wouldn't have a drastically different day with one text message, one phone call. We are not ultimately in control. And for our hearts to shift and realize that every good gift isn't a gift from some sort of like distant force, but from a loving father, it will change the way that you see your stuff. And that God doesn't just simply provide our stuff, the things we think about that we often you know, pray before a meal for. Thank you for a warm home and a warm meal, amen. But for breath in our lungs, every breath, the breath you just took, it's a gift. And God gives gifts, not wages. He's a loving father who loves to give freely. So our giving then is a reflex of his giving. For God so loved the world that he gave. God gives first. And if we're image bearers of that God, then it would make sense that we're hardwired to give, to be a people of generosity. Truth number two I want us to wrestle with this morning is this. God is the source of my satisfaction. Again, this is one that maybe it's easy for us to kind of nod our head in a church space on a Sunday morning, but it's really hard to live out, right? That God is the source. He's ultimately the only thing that can actually stand under the weight and the expectation of God. Remember what what James said here? He said, who does not change like the shifting shadows? He's talking about the world will often shift. We, We know that, right? Your bank account may not always be where you want it to be. You may not be going on the vacations that you want to be going on. You, you may be really struggling to keep up with the Joneses, but ultimately, God is the source of our satisfaction that in him we're accepted, we're known, we're loved fully and completely. That when all the world is shifting shadows, God is constant. He's the source of our satisfaction. Truth number three that I want us to wrestle with is this. That giving back to God is the way to freedom. Giving back to God is a way of saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to loosen my white-knuckled grip on whatever it is that you've been trying really hard to control. We all have something, probably multiple somethings. Giving back to God is a way of not just thinking it's all from God, but actually living it out. And I'm telling you, friends, I don't know how to explain it other than it's because we're wired this way. That when we begin to do that, you will begin to see your heart change. You'll begin to see your attitude towards your stuff change. And it sounds like a lie, but it's absolutely the truth. When we give back to God, we recognize that I'm not ultimately in control. I'm not ultimately the owner of all of this stuff. 
but I'm to steward it well in the world to help people find their way back to the God who knows them and loves them. So here's what I want to do. This idea of giving up control is not an, it's not an overnight thing. It's, it's a journey. And sometimes we'll take two steps back, three steps forward. Like I totally understand that. But one of the things that we're going to talk about the next couple of weeks is this idea of the generosity ladder. Maybe you've seen it before. The generosity ladder is for us. It's going to be how we take this journey. So for you, maybe, maybe here, maybe this is where you're at. This first one, maybe, maybe it starts with giving something. Maybe you've never given at all. Maybe your reasons and rationale are really legitimate. Maybe it starts by just saying, okay, I'm going to loosen a pinky. <laughs> I'm going to start by letting go a little bit. I'm not sure I totally buy into all this. I'm telling you, just start somewhere. Start with the discipline of generosity, of seeing everything that you have as a gift on loan from God. And maybe you already are giving something and you give kind of like based on how much the pastor cries in the sermon or how good you find the music to be or whatever. Maybe, maybe for you, the next step is this, is to give generously. To give generously, to give consistently. If this is your church home and you've not set up like a recurring gift to give God what we call the first fruits, I can't encourage you not to do that. Start giving generously. Give consistently. Make that a priority. Say, God, you're not just going to get what's left. I'm going to give you what's right. Oh, that was pretty good. Uh, Don't be like the shifting shadows. Say, I'm going to give, God, because you first gave to us. And maybe you already give generously. Maybe for you the challenge today is this last one, to give extravagantly. So much of what marked the early church wasn't stinginess, wasn't frugality. It was them giving even to people who were probably thinking, I'm not even on your team. We're not even on the same tribe. And they say, yes, but the God who made us and loves us first gave himself to us. And so we give all of what we have to you. Maybe it's giving extravagantly. And I'll, I'll be really honest. My attitude in this area has not always been great. I, I still really struggle in this way. It's one of the greatest sources of stress and anxiety and at my worst, sometimes anger. But I've seen God begin to chip away some of those things, to do a work in my heart and my life that I never thought was possible. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it's worth it. It may seem really counterintuitive. It may feel really strange at first, but I'm telling you, I'm telling you, your heart will change. So here's two challenges for us. One, just show up. Just be here for every week of this next couple of weeks, we're going to really take a deep dive. And I think it's important that we journey together and we're going to have questions. We're going to disagree. Just show up. I think this is going to be a really transformative series for us. The second challenge is to spend time wrestling throughout the week. There are two ways you can do that. One, you can sign up for the Bible reading plan. I can't encourage you to take a picture of the screen right now if you have to. We'll send you readings throughout the week to take a deeper dive. And here's the thing. You might still disagree. We might still wrestle. Things might not seem clear. That's okay. We celebrate that. But to get into the word, to not just listen to what I said on the stage for 25 minutes, to actually ask, what what does God actually say about my stuff, my finances? Take it a step further. We've also created a Facebook group where you can join this group, dive into conversation with other people across all 10 locations. I can't encourage you enough to sign up for that. Be a part of the discussion. Raise a hand. Ask a question. Disagree. Argue. But let, let's, let's not keep this conversation in the shadows where it often lives. 
let's, let's take a deep dive and say, God, help me to see my stuff the way that you do as a gift on loan to me. Now, ultimately, the Apostle Paul's words to Timothy is my prayer for this series. This, this is what he writes. He says, command those who are rich in this present world, which to be clear is us. At a global level, we are the rich, okay? Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. That's like the shifting shadows, right? It's uncertain, we know that. But to put their hope where? In God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Suggests that they do good. No. Just command them. Command them to do good. To be rich, but in good deeds. And to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. So that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. That's my prayer. So many, so many of us live buried under a sea of guilt and shame and anxiety and fear. He's saying, man, to take hold of the life that is truly life probably means you need to let go of something else. It's hard to take hold of things when our fists are clenched. See, teach them to not let their hope migrate. That's what happens. Our hope begins to migrate to our wealth, to our accumulation. He's saying, don't let that happen. Teach them not to put their hope in that because it ultimately won't deliver, but to put their hope in God who provides, who loves, who protects, who redeems, who saves and pursues. He's a loving father. Don't let your hope go elsewhere. But to put your hope in God, that is our invitation. To not just have printed on our money in God we trust, but to actually live as if it's true. Would you pray with me, please? God, thank you for loving us with that kind of love, that you would pursue us, that you would not just simply give us a set of rules or principles, but your son. You sent your son. God, and regardless of where we are in this journey, God, help us to see everything that we have, either for the first time or the thousandth time, see all that we have as a gift from you, on loan from you, God. Help us to be good stewards of what you've entrusted us with. And we pray all of this, God, in the beautiful powerful name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.